Welcome to the Almost 30 Podcast. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Krista. And we're your hosts, guides, and friends on this path. Almost 30 is not about your age. It's about the feeling. All of us are almost something, seeking community and resources to support the rumblings of transformation within us. Our conversations are deep dives, shepherded by our insatiable curiosity and desire for connection, enduring inspiration, and a sense of levity that we can all benefit from. We're looking to find the magic in the human experience. Buckle up, baby. Your evolution is waiting. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Almost 30 Podcast, baby. Welcome, everybody. How are we feeling? It's Lynn and Krista. We are here together in New York City recording again. Coming to you live. Coming to you live, baby. We're in our cash era. We're in our cash era. I love it. I was looking at the last round of interviews and I was like, what's happening? I was like, Mm. one, I had like fake eyelashes on from our event the night before. The other, I was wearing <laughs> I love a, a red sweater and then like a beachy wave and braids. I had a mermaid hair with like a business She's casual top on. trying out different on. styles. Like give her the, grace. The, the fits were wild. Like the beach waves with the braids and then the business slacks and sweater were so interesting. Now you're like, I'm a YouTube star girl. Yeah, now I'm like, <laughs> I'm in my healing era. <laughs> now I'm like, I'm going to wear baggy jeans and sneakers <laughs> because I just was a little too... Well, it's so hard. It's like sometimes I'm in the mood to like be fucking business and like be like, I'm going to an interview. And then... <laughs> yes, yeah, yesterday, bitch, you were in a blazer. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like okay. sometimes I'm in the mood and then sometimes I'm like... Which is funny, we I'm both like, dressed down today. I know. We're always like... Ha ha, so funny, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this crazy? <laughs> Are you guys getting value yet? Uh, um, welcome back to the show. Wellness, spirituality, personal growth. We've been around for about seven years now, since 2016, OG podcast in the space. We love to bring on amazing experts to talk about topics that we find interesting, to shed some light, hopefully improve your life. Hopefully you find it exciting to know. And I'm really excited for this conversation around memory. Yeah, it was fascinating. Um, I spoke to Charon Ranganath um, a couple months back and... First of all, he's a doll and we just kind of nerded out. It was, it was very sweet. Um, Charon is a professor of psychology and neuroscience and director of the Dynamic Memory Lab at the University of California at Davis. Um, so he has done over 25 years of research studying the mechanisms in the brain that allow us to remember past events using the brain imaging techniques and um, has just done incredible studies on memory disorders. He has worked with patients of all kinds uh, going through, um, you know, various levels of trauma and related that to memory. So we spoke, um, he has a new book. We spoke about the new book, Why We Remember Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Um, But I actually found it really fascinating. We started the conversation around how our brains are actually not designed to remember anything. Uh, or sorry, not designed to remember everything and how that serves its purpose, both in a primal sense and emotional sense. Um, And that just kind of opened up into um, memory related to trauma, what parts of the brain are working in a traumatic experience. And we also talked about just the like health of memory because I feel like depending on the season of my life I'm in, the emotional state, the stress state I'm in, I find that my memory works differently. 
you know, sometimes I can have a really great memory and sometimes I don't remember what I did like an hour ago Mm -hmm. Um, and what is happening there and how my emotional state is affecting that, how, you know, my nutrition, my lifestyle is affecting that and just how we can maintain a really healthy memory for years and years to years to come. Um, So, I love this conversation and um, he brought in a lot of his research, which I found fascinating and kind of rooted us in the conversation. One of my favorite books is called Moonwalking with Einstein by Jonathan Sanfower, who also wrote Eating Animals, which was the book that made me turn vegetarian. But in the book, it was so fascinating because he committed to joining a memory competition. Mm. And in the book, I think he won the memory competition, but basically there's so many different strategies and tactics that you can use to improve your memory. And those people that are in memory competitions, what they often use to remember things is something called a memory palace. Mm. And it's almost like you would have a home that you grew up in. So it's like you can, you really have a good visual of the home you grew up in embedded in your mind. And in memory competitions, they'll be like, remember red apple, yellow taxi, dirty plate, small dog, all these things. They'll say like a hundred things that they have to remember. So the way that they'll help them remember is by going, I'm walking into my house and there's a red apple on the table. There is a yellow taxi car in the playroom. And then there is a dirty plate on the counter. And so you kind of like see the items and Mm. things. You see the memories listed in the memory palace that you have. And one of the other things I really loved in it is one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's um, memory, um, monotony collapses time novelty unfolds it. And so basically thinking about the monotony of our life when we go to the same job for 30 years, we come home, watch TV, Mm -hmm. eat dinner, go to bed, basically makes time seem really short. That's why when the years go by fast, it seems like time is going by fast because we're not doing anything to expand our concept of time. Mm -hmm. So when you're younger, you have such a greater concept of time because you are doing so many new things You're learning to walk, learning to read, learning to ride a bike, going to your first day of school. So it's so important that in order to have a healthy memory and even a really rich, beautiful life, it's like, what are the different things you can do and bring into your life to expand the richness of your experiences? Yeah, he talks about how curiosity really spikes those chemicals in your brain that helps you create new memories. So it's like, if you're curious, you know, even whether it's in conversation or just exploring new things, like you're saying, that that can actually help you to form those memories, help you to remember. Um, he also talked about how multitasking actually impairs your memory. And I was like, makes wow. a lot of sense. So if you're, if you're someone who is doing the most in a day, getting everything done on your to-do list, doing multiple things at a time, it's basically like your mind is splitting and it's actually not able to, your mind is not optimized on the one thing. Wow. And so it's like only hitting, you know, a few inches below the surface rather than focusing deeply on one thing, getting that done and or engaging in it. And you are more likely to have a memory formed or remember if you are deeply focused on one thing. So... I think that's a big part of like when I don't remember, it's because I'm doing multiple things at once. Wow. Wow. And even when you were talking about earlier, just how important memory is to our existence. Yes. Like we need memory to function. Mm -hmm. We like need memory to experience happiness. We have so many different memories that serve as the baseline foundation for how much 
we believe our life is worthwhile and meaningful. Mm -hmm. And even seeing, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's, even seeing him lose memory and things, it's like you absolutely lose reality. You lose happiness because you don't really know where to put things or where you are. Like spatially, you can't really understand. When I was at Max's house, Max Lugavere, his mother died of um, a certain type of dementia. And he showed, he has a documentary coming out about it. Mm. And seeing him in this documentary, like seeing the impact of what not having access to your memories does to you, you are feel like a shell and how scared you feel. Yeah. That's what I've noticed too with people who have memory disorders or memory diseases. It's It's such a terrifying feeling to have no contextual grounding in reality because memory serves the basis for that. Yes. Yes. It's wild. Memory is so important. And yeah, it's interesting with a society and culture that is multitasking almost all the time. What is that doing to our ability to remember? Mm -hmm. Um, But he actually says about Alzheimer's disease. So the brain's default mode network is key to early detection of Alzheimer's disease. So the default mode network is a system of connected brain areas that show increased activity when a person is disengaged from the outside world, i.e. like daydreaming or thinking about the past or future. Mm. Um, So he says that the only way to develop useful treatments for Alzheimer's will be to administer drugs to people who are at risk in this preclinical stage because later in the disease, it's like the the death of the cells in certain areas of the brain. So being able to activate those parts of the brain, whether it's with medication or, you know, certain therapies, Mm -hmm. things like that. But... um, yeah, it's a, it's a fascination, I think, now more than ever because there is such a rise in mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, dementia, and other neurological diseases. Yeah, there is. I think it's interesting when I wonder what that correlation is. I think there's a spiritual correlation to it sure. in my case, but uh, or in my family's case. But yeah. as with anything, there's a spiritual correlation to everything that we do. But I'm excited about this one. I wanted to have a conversation about this. I love someone that can bring like the research around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think us thinking about this is such a new type of topic. So yeah, I'm excited. It's really, really good. Um, the book is Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Uh, you can follow Charon on Instagram at the memory doc, D-O-C, and then on Twitter at Charon Ranganath. Amazing. Okay, guys, we have over 600 other episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It means a lot to us. We also got Morning Microdose. So if you like a quick hit of inspiration, of personal growth, of laughter, of fun, Morning Microdose is it. It is our daily podcast. That's between five and 10 minutes, no ads, just the heaters from the podcast over time. So many people are loving Morning Microdose. It's been such a, we hit like, I think a few, we're at like, 3 million now Mm -hmm. downloads, um, which is exciting. And um, we have almost30.com, more information about us and our partners. Our partners are incredible. So there's tons there. Almost 30 podcasts on Instagram and TikTok. And then I'm on Instagram at it's Krista. And I'm at Lindsay Sipsick. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. See you next time. Okay. I need to introduce you to a revolutionary new app. Um, Superhuman. I have been doing these superhuman activations every single morning for the last three weeks. Let me just tell you, I kind of fell off of my game after I had the baby. Most of my time and energy was going to him still is, but I have been able to carve out time in the morning before I get into the swing with him. And I've been doing these activations. I do a lot of the shorter ones because I don't have a ton of time, but let me just say, this is new. Like 
this is a new type of audio that um, are super energizing and really specifically designed to transform you into your future self. So I know a lot of us want to manifest things. I know a lot of us are thinking about planning for the future, um, but a lot of us feel stuck. And so I've just felt like this has unstuck me in just the most beautiful way. So I've been doing a lot of their pep talks. I've been doing some of their writing activations. Uh, this morning I did the three morning questions. It was a seven minute, really vibey writing activation that I love. So I had my journal out. Um, yesterday I did a pep talk, uh, about tackling procrastination. There's a part of me that procrastinates quite a bit. So I'm just I love this. I love this. There's going to be an activation for you for this moment, for this day. Uh, it's incredibly supportive. So we actually interviewed Mimi Bouchard, the founder, not too long ago. Check out that interview. Uh, and we have a sample of one of the activations on our feed. So you can check that out as well. It's way easier to implement into your routine and far more effective than any other audio app out there. I've just noticed that I'm doing it much more consistently. So please don't miss out on this crazy deal. They rarely do discounts. On top of the 14-day free trial, get over 60% off your subscription for a limited time only at activation.com slash almost 30. Literally, there is no risk. If you change your mind and forget to cancel after the trial, you're covered by their money back guarantee. The offer is only available through their website, not on the app store. So that's activations.com slash almost 30 for 60% off. It expires soon. Okay. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for the last four years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. No exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every single day. And it makes me feel so nourished. It makes me feel ready for the day, energized and focused. Um, it's the best. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I am all about simplicity lately. I'm a new mom and I can't mess around. Things got to be simple and powerful. But I talk to a lot of people who are like, okay, what should I take? what do I need? I'm like, first of all, I'm not a doctor, but what I do know is that AG1 does an incredible job of filling in those nutritional gaps. It is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients and pre and probiotics. Um, they are obsessed with quality, high quality ingredients. They like do not settle for anything less. Um, and I've just heard from a lot of people who have started AG1 that it's like, the way they start their day. So this is one of the first things I drink in the morning. Um, and I just feel so freaking good. It sets me on the right path for the entire day. So if there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I partnered with them for so long. Kristen and I are obsessed. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash almost 30. That's drinkag1.com slash almost 30. Check it out. Okay, cool. We are here. We just checked our our blazers for dog hair and baby drool. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for making the trip. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, 
I think what people don't know about almost 30 is that so often Krista and I are even more interested in topics like we're going to discuss today um, because of the long-term interest and benefits um, to something like memory where we are now in our 30s. Um, and it's something that I think as business owners, as now moms, as people in relationships, we're kind of being mirrored moments where, ah, oh, our memory interesting. It has changed or mm -hmm. it's not as good as it used to be, or it's better in these moments than it is in, in these moments. And I've just noticed it very much so in this season of motherhood. Mom brain seemingly is a real thing, but I'm just excited to really explore this topic today. Uh, no matter how old people are, no matter whether you feel like you have a great memory or not a great memory, there are ways in which we can make our memory better. And really, I'm interested too in how the memory serves um, us biologically. So much to get into, but I would love for you to just share how you got into this work. I always am so interested um, to know how you kind of found this niche of sorts. Yeah, I definitely didn't plan it. <laughs> I didn't. It uh, just sort of happened when I was in college. I was an engineering major, actually, because mm -hmm. I thought, you know, my family immigrated from India. So I didn't really see options. I was told you're either going to be an engineer or a doctor or homeless, basically. So, yeah. uh, but I just hated engineering because I realized that I don't like solving other people's problems. And so I went more towards uh, psychology where I started getting involved in research. And that's where I got to create my own problems. So that's I'm much better at creating problems than anything else. Yeah. And then I went to grad school in clinical psychology. And so I was actually studying depression. But one of the things I noticed in my clinical work and in my research was memory just kept coming up over and over again. Mm. So you'd see people who are suffering from depression and you ask them what's going on. The first thing they would say is my memory is going. Um, a lot of the work that I was doing in the clinic, I was testing people. Uh, some of them coming in worried that they had Alzheimer's disease. And again, you know, sometimes it was, but sometimes it was depression. Sometimes it was PTSD even. Mm. Uh, there were so many different causes of, you know, if somebody had a head injury, something like that. Um, and so, but almost always, if you ask people what they were concerned about, it was memory. And so around that time, brain imaging was starting to blow up and we had this unprecedented opportunity to see what's happening in the brain when people remember. And so I decided, well, I could work in the clinic or I could actually get on board with the science and see if we can actually do science that can improve people's lives. And so that's where I ended up going. Mm. And so I'd love to just kind of pause on the the depression piece. And what were you seeing in relation to depression and memory and why people were losing their memory? Yeah, it's, there's two facets to depression that are fascinating. So one is that people generally have poorer memory. And part of it is uh, an area that I'm super interested in, which is the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. So some of your listeners might have heard about this area. It's involved in using your goals to control what it is you want to do. And so people with damage to the prefrontal cortex would end up 
having all the knowledge to do what they wanted to do, but they couldn't use it in the moment. They couldn't be actionable on it. And depression really shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And so a lot of the people I saw, it's not that they didn't have the capability to remember. It was just that they didn't have the oomph to, mm. you know, focus their attention, to use strategies, to basically put in that effort that, because remembering is hard. <laughs> and so, so that was a big part of it. Another part of it was that there's a, many people have a bias to positively remember events. So people tend to remember themselves in a very positive light. They tend to remember things more optimistically than they really were. Uh, but people with depression, it's the opposite. They have a negative memory bias. And so what would happen is, is that people would tell you about their day, but it would be focusing on all the negative parts of their day. And what I noticed was when people were telling me about how badly their day went, they feel worse. Mm -hmm. So it becomes the cycle of having a negative mood, recalling negative memories, and then getting back into a negative mood. Mm. The prefrontal cortex. So we, at almost 30, we started this when we were almost 30. And oftentimes we'll drop a little nugget that says the prefrontal cortex, I want you to check us on this, doesn't come online fully until you're about 25. Is that for females and males? Is that correct? And I'm saying this because oftentimes in that transition from your 20s to your 30s, there's often this like wake up mm -hmm. of, whoa, okay, like why am I here? What's mm -hmm. my purpose? Why am I with this person? Why do I live here? Why am I in this job? So can you can you like talk about that a little bit since you're obsessed with the prefrontal cortex too? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So there is uh, a lot of what you said is basically correct. So what happens is throughout development, you actually have a changing in connections between areas of the brain. So you can think of the brain as having a bunch of neurons. These are the basic cells that compute information. And so they talk to each other via these connections. Uh, uh, a lot of it you can see if you actually look at cuts through the brain, there's this stuff called the white matter. Mm. So it's like the white stuff in the middle of the brain. And that's a lot of the connections that you see. And so the prefrontal cortex tweaks those connections throughout development. And so throughout even the teenage years. And so it is online, but it's not necessarily talking to other brain areas in the most efficient way possible. And so one of the interesting ideas that uh, I ran across when researching the book uh, was that actually during childhood, it makes sense not to have a fully developed prefrontal cortex because you don't quite know the cultural context you're in. You don't quite understand the place that you're in. And also kids learn, I mean, you can see this yourself through exploration and play, you know, whether it's an infant grabbing their feet or whether it's older kids kind of going out and wandering around the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so having a prefrontal cortex that's not fully developed allows you to be more open. But as you get older, you know, like your parent, for instance, and actually uh, prefrontal function really changes when people become parents, for instance. Uh, we know a little bit about it, but not nearly enough. But it looks like the volume of the prefrontal cortex may increase mm. when people have children and so or at least with mothers and so it makes sense again because you have to focus on what's relevant in order to keep a timeline in order to take care of your child yes. right and yes. so uh that's about the years where you really want to have the most 
focused prefrontal cortex. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely felt like my capacity stretch as far as whether it's like what I can remember or what I can um, handle or multitask. And I kind of want I want to talk about multitasking. Mm. Um, but I've also noticed at that same at the same time is that my mom brain is quite strong. Mm -hmm. So meaning I will forget why I walked into a room. I will not be able to recount a story that I wanted to tell my husband at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think I'm kind of multitasking all day, every day. And that might be the reason why I'm not sure, but can you speak to the multitasking piece? Because I think a lot of people out there, especially in this day and age, mm -hmm. really for lack of a better term, get off from doing the most mm -hmm. all the time and getting a lot of things done. We're so, um, our worthiness is so tied to our to-do lists mm -hmm. and being able to uh, multitask. So why, and you've described this in your book, why is it not necessarily great from a memory perspective to multitask all the time? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the reasons is, is that we often feel like when we're multitasking, we're doing two things at once. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's sort of true, but you're really doing two things badly at once. And the reason for that is that there's always a cost involved in switching from one task to another. Yeah. And that is partly because you have the prefrontal cortex that has to shift gears and say, okay, whatever I was doing before, here's my new goal. And that takes a little time and that time basically makes us less efficient. Mm -hmm. And so if you're switching back and forth, what happens is, is you're really taxing that prefrontal cortex. And so instead of being able to focus your attention on what's happening in the moment or what you're doing in the moment, you end up using those resources to just go back and forth and constantly catch up to the moment. Mm. That makes any sense. Yes. Yes. And so that's a big part of it right there is when you multitask, you're not really there when you're doing either task. Now, on top of it, you have something else, which is a kind of a kooky aspect of memory that we're just getting into, which is something called event boundaries. Mm. So when you change your mindset, going from one thing to another, checking email to having a conversation, something like that, or, you know, as a new parent, you're constantly switching attention between your child and the daily tasks that you have to do, especially if you're a working parent. Yeah. And all that switching, what happens is, is that when you switch over, uh, there's another area of the brain that's very important for memory. It's called the hippocampus. And you think that's the area that puts it all together to allow you to go back to remember events. And what we've seen and others have seen is there's a little signal to the prefrontal, um, to the hippocampus that happens when people do that change in mindset. So imagine now you're switching back and forth between two different things. Mm. What happens is you're your brain is basically creating these little memories for each event, each time you switch over. And so rather than having one coherent, rich memory for this time interacting with your child versus this time that you're working, you have a bunch of fragmented, blurry, crummy memories because you weren't paying full attention mm -hmm. and you're going back and forth and just creating all this little clutter basically in your brain, if that yes, makes any sense. That makes complete sense. So yeah, the 
uh, say the phrase again, event boundaries? Yes. Event yeah. boundaries. That's okay. the reason why if you ever show up in the kitchen and you're like, what am I doing Yeah, what here? am I doing here? <laughs> uh, the reason is, is that actually this happens even when you switch from one room to another is that your sense of where you are changes. Right? Mm. So if you just walked out of that door right now, your sense of where you are would change, even though you just walk, let's say, one foot, right? And that creates a little event boundary in your head that then sends this message, okay, let's encode this memory right now. And is there, I guess, what can people do who are needing to get a lot done in a day? Mm -hmm. How would you recommend they move throughout their day so that their memory is strengthened and also they're still able to get things done. Mm -hmm. Is it just being super present when you're doing something, one thing at a time? What do you recommend? Yeah, I think when we think about brain function, if you look at almost anything in the way the human brain works, it's always quality over quantity, right? So you have the sense that you're just seeing the whole world in front of you, mm -hmm. but really you're focusing attention. When, if you were really to look at your eyes, for instance, your eyes move around all the time. And you're just getting little glimpses of the world around you. But each time you focus on something, you get actually a lot of information for where mm. you're paying attention to, right? So right there itself, you can see that there's a focus on getting a little bit of, in, I mean, uh, focusing on particular things that you're doing, but getting a lot of information out of it. And memory works best when you focus on that quality over quantity, so if you focus on one task and then switch to another, you have your child time, for instance, and then you switch over to work time, you're going to be much better off than if you're trying to send emails and phone calls to people while you're doing your childcare. Yes. And I realize that's a big ask for a lot of people, right? I mean, we often get interrupted with things. But we also often hamper ourselves with things like alerts on our phone or Apple watches. I was just uh, going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's kind of sneaky. I, my mom came this morning to watch the baby and I saw she had her Apple watch on, which she always does. And I knew I was coming here to talk to you and I dropped a little nugget and I said, mom, you know, those, those alerts that you have on your phone, like could be causing, you know, you to not remember things and this is why, whatever. So I would actually love to talk about that briefly because I think we're so used to that now. We're mm -hmm. so used to our phone dinging and the notification for this. And it's just... It's almost as if it's like a creature comfort now mm -hmm. to have those notifications. But talk to me about what's happening when we get those notifications, what our brain is doing. So when you're getting a notification, what happens is your attention gets grabbed, right? And so when you're, your ideal conditions for memory is you're guiding your attention with intention, meaning that you're focused on something that is relevant to you and your mm -hmm. goals, right? But when you get an alert, your brain shifts over to whatever that alert is. And so you can imagine you're a cave person and that makes sense. You hear some saber-toothed tiger, you want to pay attention to mm -hmm. that, right? You don't want to keep focusing on you know, your cave art or whatever, sure. right? <laughs> and so, but in the real world now, we create all these distractions mm. that are not necessary. And so even if you just ignore those alerts, what happens is your attention has already been grabbed. And so you have that cost. Uh, another thing is, is that there's some research suggesting that these alerts or even just being attached to your email and checking it off and can be stressful. Yes. And chronic stress 
is actually fairly bad for memory. We know that stress is not great for frontal function, mm. tends to shut down the prefrontal cortex. Um, and then chronic stress, uh, if you're in like a very toxic work environment for a long period of time, you're in toxic relationships, you are uh, financially insecure, all these things that you think of may turn out to be detrimental to mm. memory in the long run as well, even causing changes in brain structure. Is there a like a, a primal piece to that? Like I'm just thinking about... So I guess let's pull up for a second. What is like the purpose of our memory in a biological primal sense? Mm -hmm. Because if you're saying that when someone is stressed, their memory tends to be compromised, I'm wondering if that's like a natural protective mechanism of the body or something mm -hmm. like that. Can you talk to me more about that? Yeah. When we, uh, I guess the first part, there's two questions there. So let me address the first part and then I'll go to the second. Mm -hmm. So what is memory for? We often think of memory as being about the past and right. we kick ourselves because you can't remember because we think we're supposed to remember everything and it should be easy, right? But that's not what memory is for. It's about grabbing what's important or potentially useful to help us navigate the present and the future. Mm. The past is over. So from the brain's perspective, it's only you want to carry the baggage that you need because you'll be able to use it later. And a lot of the other stuff you don't need, right? So today, for instance, I remember my hotel room number, but tomorrow, good luck. I yeah. won't remember because I don't need it. Right, right, right. So that's a big part of it. So when you're stressed, one of the things that does happen is there is often a kind of enhancement for memory for the context in which you got stressed out in, right? So you might remember th things that are relevant to what got you stressed, but a lot of the peripheral stuff, maybe not so much. And where that becomes relevant to what we're talking about is, is that often it's not that we don't remember anything, but it's just not focused on what we're supposed to be doing. So if we're putting ourselves inadvertently subjecting ourselves to stressors. You're losing that ability to focus, even if you're remembering the things that are um, not so useful to you, right, right? Right. And in the case of trauma, that obviously can serve a purpose in the sense of, again, if you're under significant threats for a long period of time, from the brain's perspective, there's information there that you may be able to use later, right? But from the perspective of having to suffer traumas in your life that don't necessarily repeat themselves, they become these intrusive memories that stick around mm. because your brain is telling you essentially that's what's important. And there are chemicals like cortisol and all these other chemicals that are released when we're stressed out that actually promote neuroplasticity, meaning they kind of solidify these memories that are taking place. Mm. And I can go on about that. There's actually a lot of work on this topic. Oh, I'm sure. The the trauma piece, I guess I've heard both, where people will have th those recurring memories, but then also no memory at all. Mm -hmm. I guess what's the difference? Yeah. Is there a difference? Well, there is a difference in the sense that you get two pieces in, I'll speak to PTSD, which is um, where people really tend to um, think about this although some of these ideas may apply to non-PTSD as sure. well. So not everybody who experiences a traumatic event actually develops PTSD, and we don't really know why. 
Uh, but one of the ideas may be that for whatever reason, some people, especially if there's chronic stress, they, maybe I'll backtrack and just say, our memories for life events are tied to a context, meaning they're tied to a place and time when they happen, mm -hmm. right? Now, later on, if I were to come back to the studio, say, I'll probably have this memory of this conversation pop up. And a lot of things that I might not have remembered before I got here will pop into my head. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have traumatic memories, what sometimes happens is that context becomes overgeneralized so that the memories pop up in places and times that they shouldn't necessarily mm. pop up. Uh, so I used to work in a VA hospital when I was doing my training, and I used to work with veterans who were um, uh, dealing with PTSD from the Vietnam War. And one of the things that came up in the groups all the time was the 4th of July, because the fireworks would just take them back to Vietnam. Mm, yeah. And from an objective perspective, you might say, what do fireworks have to do with Vietnam? But just that sound was enough of a reminder to tie people to this contact. So on the one hand, you have this memory that's not tied to a particular context that's coming up over and over again. And on the other hand, because of that chronic stress and that dysfunction of being able to tie memories to a context, you lose some of the precision in memory in the present and the ability mm. to form new memories. And so one of the common findings in PTSD is that new learning of information tends to be compromised as well. So you have both. You have a memory that sticks around too much and this inability to, or a reduced ability to form new memories mm -hmm. as well. And then if you don't remember an event at all, is that the body or brain protecting you? Mm -hmm. There's there's a school of thought on that. It kind of uh, stems from some of Freud's writings, although even Freud didn't necessarily buy into this idea that there's just an automatic suppression of mm -hmm. events that are uh, traumatic and painful. The research generally shows that it, it's quite the opposite, that people who uh, experience traumatic events can't actually shake these yeah. things, right? And so it's not necessarily that there's some automatic protective mechanism in the brain. There's no scientific evidence for right. that idea anyway. Okay. Um, but what may happen, so one of my friends, Mike Anderson, has studied this a little bit, or a lot really, um, is the idea that maybe when we experience traumatic events, we suppress them sometimes. We try to bring them out of our consciousness. Sure. And when we remember something, that what we do with it can actually change the memory. And so if you keep recalling and then suppressing this memory over and over again, it can become more blurry. It can become more just uh, different, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that may be a piece of it. It also is something that, again, could be tied very clearly to a particular context. And so unless you're back in that time and place, you might not pull it up and you might not remember it. Um, so I think on average, we believe that there's, I mean, there's gobs of evidence suggests that people have traumatic memories that stick around and they're very conscious of them. Uh, but some people even get an experience of recovering a memory that they didn't have before. And it may be because they got that context back that just brought back this experience that they had kept in a little compartment in their head. Sure. Or it may be because um, sometimes people do periodically have these memories and then they kind of suppress them over and over again. And then later on it comes back to mind 
and they forget that they actually remembered it, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. That they kind of told themselves, oh, I was fine for all these years when in fact it was persistently coming. Yeah. So your ability to, your memory for what happened isn't quite the same as what actually happened. Um, Danny Kahneman uh, won the Nobel Prize for economics, talks about it as the remembering self is different than the experiencing self. Mm. And, and that's actually very important when it comes to traumatic memories because we often remember those memories from a particular perspective. And especially if you go to not so much traumas as much as the painful memories that we all have, right? Sure. We experience it from a particular perspective and we create a narrative around it. And you can actually remember that event from a very different perspective and actually pull up information that you might not have even had access to before. And that was one of the things that, again, drew me to memory research was my experience doing therapy because I had a person come in for driving phobia. I had a person come in for just feeling insecure in relationships, but it always came back to memory. Mm. And one of the things that, we were able to do is they share the memory with me and then I reflect it and maybe cast it from an outside perspective. And through that act of collaborating on this narrative, you actually change the way you approach it. And mm -hmm. so gradually the way that you remember it starts to change. Yeah. I've, I've had that many times in therapy where my therapist will reflect, um, and almost be, you know, my cheerleader where it's like, well, you know, it must have been really hard for you to uh, be the middleman between your parents. That must. And I never thought about it like that. Mm -hmm. And so it almost like takes away. Yeah, to your point, that like very narrow perspective on this is how it happened or this is what it was. Mm -hmm. And it almost allows you to zoom out a little bit and be like, oh, wow. Yeah, actually, that was that was really hard for me. And that's why I reacted in such a way, or that's why that happened. So, which is, yeah, just one of the many reasons why, you know, therapy is just something I'll always invest in because mm -hmm. it's that constant, um, yeah, resituation of what happened. Um, I wanted to talk about the switching a little bit, but kind of staying in the same vein where this idea of repetition helps our memory versus novelty. And so you might encounter this, um, you might encounter this in like a therapy setting where you're, you know, maybe uh, exposing yourself to something that you have a phobia of or mm -hmm. something like that. But um, I want to talk about like the difference between novelty and um, repetition or sameness. Mm -hmm as it relates to memory, because I think my perception is that memorization takes repetition and memorization means I have a good memory. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in your findings, from what I read in your book, there is just another perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, so many things in what you're saying that are fascinating topics. Uh, let me start with repetition. Yeah. So when we repeat, when we repeat any, let's say if you repeatedly um, experience something over and over again. Like if I were to see you every day, your face becomes very familiar to me. And uh, there's changes in the brain that happen every time I see you, right? If you're learning a new language and you just start to use these words that you've never used before, something that seems totally 
difficult to articulate mm -hmm. um, will eventually become something that's very fluent and easy to produce, right? And that's why advertisers really bank on this because, uh, you know, everybody knows what Budweiser is, but if you put Budweiser ads in the Super Bowl, that name becomes a little bit more familiar. Mm. And sometimes we mistake that familiarity for pleasantness. And so we go, oh, Budweiser, eh, maybe it's a little bit better than Miller or whatever. Right. So I'm going to go for the Budweiser when I'm at the store. Even if it's like a 1% chance, sure. translates to a lot of sales, right? Uh, so that's a kind of a memory that can sometimes slip under the radar. We might not even be aware of it. Uh, there's another part of it, though, which is, if you are actively remembering something. So mm -hmm. it's not so much you're passively <clears throat> reading the same book over and over again or uh, passively just looking at, you know, a Spanish-English dictionary and trying to memorize all the words. Uh, but if you're actively recalling the memory, you put some effort into remembering. That effort, what it seems to do is highlight little weaknesses in the memories, meaning that you have these connections between neurons that might not be so good for remembering it and others that are really good. And so the memory can get shaken up a little bit from that process so that it becomes leaner and meaner mm. later on. And so that's why, for instance, if you're an actor, you don't read the script. You, you I mean, you don't literally read the script. You actually act it out, you rehearse it, right? Or if you're driving, you're actually producing the, map, so to speak, in your head from memory, as right. opposed to just looking at a map and trying to memorize it. Mm -hmm. So that's a part where repeatedly recalling a memory can really help help you, but that's effortful. It's not something that comes easy. Uh, the third part you mentioned is novelty, which is something I'm hugely interested in, both because I tend to be a novelty seeker mm -hmm. um, and because it's just fascinating from a brain perspective. So. Um, you might have heard about the chemical dopamine. Mm -hmm. People usually talk about it as a reward chemical. Yeah. Um, what a lot of people think, though, in neurosciences is that it's actually about energizing you, but not necessarily making you feel happy, right? So when you experience something, you learn about something that's rewarding, you might feel, yeah, I got this energy, and it could be like a desire. You yes. meet someone new, and you're attracted to them or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but also being in a new place can do that. You know, so I was in a, in this new hotel that I've never been in before mm -hmm. last night. And so I had this energy. I couldn't sleep because <laughs> of this, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I just feel a little revved up. Sure. And it doesn't have to be pleasant. It can actually be kind of unpleasant, mm -hmm. but that, uh, exposure to novelty can heighten plasticity and give you enhanced memories actually as a result. And that's, we think, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you want to have something in the brain that both promotes you to discover new things and explore, and at the same time, be able to add to your knowledge base. Um, but the cool thing is, is that you don't need to be in a new place. I, I think it really makes it obvious when you're in a new place. But even if you try to find the new in what's there, you know, it's what the mm -hmm. you know, Buddhist people call the beginner's mind, right? You start to see, be curious about things that you might have taken for granted. And our research has shown that even this curiosity, when you're in a state of curiosity, can drive these same dopamine circuits a little bit. And as a result, you can get enhanced memory, even for things that are going on in the background that you're not necessarily curious about. Yeah. So curiosity has a lot of benefits as well. Yeah, I, I keep saying 
in this new season of motherhood, I'm like, everything is so new. Like mm-hmm. everything every day yeah. is just new, new, new. And I have no choice. And gladly I am like so present for each moment that I'm like, whoa, I've never done this before, or I've never seen this before. And it has, it's given me, and maybe this is why, you know, moms can run on very little sleep. Not that I recommend not sleeping a lot, but I was surprised at how much energy I had Mm -hmm. to be able to do all the things for the baby, even though I hadn't gotten a lot of sleep. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, wow, there's just so much new every day. And it's fascinating to me. I'm excited by it. I'm like blown away by it. So I'm wondering if that's the dopamine hit of that energy that I'm feeling. It's not always happy, but Mm -hmm. it's always just like, whoa, okay. Yeah. I'm here. I'm present for this. And it feels like I'm being stretched. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's that neural plasticity happening too. Um, in terms of, I want to d- dig even deeper into this curiosity and, and give some tactical ways that people can uh, implement this into their everyday, because I think what we're coming what we're bumping up against is kind of this modern world, which has its benefits. There are so many things we can do and learn every day that are new, but there's also kind of a barrage of the same, same, same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess what would you recommend someone who's listening, who's, you know, between 25 and 40 mm-hmm. and uh, how to introduce novelty into their day so that they can activate or um, engender that neuroplasticity? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, I just have to put my scientist hat on for a second and say, I don't really know for sure that how much that plasticity would spread throughout the day per se. But if I, uh, based on some of the work that's out there, for instance, there's, there's actually a very cool study that was done in rats where they had a rat trying to do a boring memory task. Uh Well, it wasn't that boring. He was trying to learn where some food was, right? Mm -hmm. And so then afterwards, they put the rat in a novel place. So then the rat comes back to the old place where they're doing this task where they normally forget. And they had this great memory that stuck around for um, for the thing that they were trying to memorize. And that was related to dopamine, actually. Wow. Uh, you know, there, of course, there's gobs of other hormones and neurotransmitters sure. floating around our brain that also have similar effects, but that was dopamine. And so what I can say is, is that, yes, you can incorporate a little bit of novelty in your day and, you know, incorporate curiosity in your day as long as you don't make it a distraction. Mm. And I think this is key to everything is being mindful about curating what you'll remember because you won't remember everything and if you accept that then the idea is okay what are what do i want to remember what's important and if you were to say okay well i'm gonna go into a wikipedia wormhole for the next 10 minutes do that and maybe if that gets you going you come back to whatever it is you're doing and then you stay on task. You can make it like a little reward, for instance. Okay. And reward is another thing that can, you know, even if you find something just intrinsically rewarding, that could be another way that you can do it to help energize you. And and you often feel refreshed when you give yourself a little break like Mm -hmm. that. And Mm -hmm. that can actually help you with uh, the tasks that you're trying to do. As long as you carve out time and you're there for there for it, not just multitasking or anything like that. That's right. Yeah, I like that. I like that reward piece because it does feel like, say, you are someone listening and you have, you know, 
your inbox you need to handle, you have a few work calls, you have a presentation you need to work on. And so building into your day these moments of novelty reward where it's like you're doing something that stimulates you in a way that feels good. Um, maybe you're learning something new. Maybe you're doing something with your hands. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know why like pottery comes to mind for me. Isn't that hilarious? I'm like, I want to, I want to be in a pottery studio right now. Um, Cause it's like doing something so new, but also with your, like with your mm-hmm. hands. Do you yeah. ever find that that like stimulates something different in the brain? I don't, to be honest, I don't know for sure. Yeah. But there are studies for instance, that show that if you, let's say if you just ask people to memorize something mm-hmm. and you actually have them hold on Do to it, it, yeah. mm-hmm. it actually does promote better memory than that's if you're just kind of like trying to think about it. And I guess that's maybe that yeah. speaks to a deeper point that you're making, which is we often live in our heads. Yes. And a lot of what gives us rich memories is the sensory world around us. And so if you remember things that you just thought about, it's almost as if you imagined it. It didn't really mm. happen. Because in fact, actually, if you look at people's brains, there's a lot of similarity when people imagine something versus when they really remember it. And the reason is, is that often when we remember, we imagine how it could have been, mm. but we don't really necessarily replay it, right? But the more of those sensory details that you have that keep you grounded, whether it's like focusing on the sights, you know, seeing this crinkly wall around me and that that's like deeply stimulating when I look at it because walls aren't supposed to be crinkly, right? (laughs) Um, And so there's always plants around and all these Mm -hmm. things. And so those little factors influence your memory, give you a richer sense of having been there, right? Um, and maybe that's also, there's a bunch of reasons people have said this is that actually taking a walk out in nature can be very re-energizing yeah. and also promote better memory too. Mm-hmm. It makes me think too, and I believe, um, uh, you mentioned this in your book around test taking. Mm-hmm. So it's better to do a practice test mm-hmm. rather than just sit and memorize what you need to know for the test, mm-hmm. which I mean, looking back now, like, yes, I would just rack my, I would just work so hard on memorizing things mm-hmm. and then get to the test and feel like I have no idea mm-hmm. what I memorized because it's in like a different context and mm-hmm. all the things. So I think that's really, really fascinating. And, you know, just how we can um, support our our youngsters. And, mm-hmm. and on that piece too, the making of mistakes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, how that supports memory and learning and retention? Mm -hmm. Yes. So in the book, we talk, we call it, or I call it error-driven learning. Yeah. Uh, Meaning that the brain really benefits from learning from mistakes. And again, the idea is, is that you are exposing, it's like a stress test, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You're trying to pull up a memory and identifying these weaknesses in the memory and then being able to repair them when you get the answer. Now, if you just read something over and over again, you never get that opportunity to stress test your memory. Mm-hmm. And so that's a part of it. And another part of it is we just tend to be overconfident too in our ability to remember yes, things later. And so true. there's also that piece. But we think that some of it is, and in fact, this is a big part of what you see even in AI and learn, machine learning is that what you get the most benefits when 
you stress test a neural network and then you identify, here's a mistake. Let me tweak these synapses or these mm. connections to make it optimal for putting out the memory that I need. And where I think this is really, you know, having been a parent, having been somebody who hated high school and junior high, especially, yeah. is that we give these kids, we give kids an expectation that memory should be effortless and I you know. should just be able to pull up things easily, right? And you're actually missing out on an opportunity there because what happens is, is that you cram the night before a test or something and you can do well, but you lose that information within about a week after the test is over, right? But if you were to test yourself on it, what you find is, is that actually that information is retained much better in the long run. Um, but testing yourself is hard, it's painful. And, uh, but what we find is, is that the more you struggle, often the better you will retain things in the long run. Mm -hmm. So maybe instead of saying, hey, you've mastered this, let me give you an A, maybe we should be incentivizing constant improvement. And if you're not really feeling like you're working to learn, maybe you're not learning enough. Yeah. I'm really missing the point on like, you know, wanting to do well to get the grade rather than wanting to do well to learn new things. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like we were so grade focused yes. when I was growing up. Oh, I think yeah. it's still like that, depending on what kind of school you're in. Mm -hmm. um, and not that grades are bad. Um, but I do think if that is the, that is the like top priority for mm -hmm. both the student and the teacher, I don't know. I think to your point, we're missing something really important in terms of development and learning. And even, you know, with a baby now, I notice and have read like allowing, allowing your child to struggle to do something and not just make it comfortable for them mm. all the time. Grit that you're not going to let them hurt themselves. But, yeah. you know, if they're trying to crawl yeah. or walk yeah. or, you know, if they are trying to figure out how to pick up a piece of food, yeah. not to do it for them, but yeah. to allow them to struggle through it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that part of the expectation that learning should be hard yeah. is great. As, yes. Because I think the thing is, it's, it's you know, I mean, I'm, this isn't my, I'm uh, not a wellness person per se, but I think it's, it's really bad to give kids the expectation that learning should be effortless because then when they struggle, they say, oh, well, this must mean I'm not very good. Yes. I shouldn't do this anymore. Right. And that's where you get things like math anxiety and stuff. Yep. Nobody would say, okay, well, I should just like watch a YouTube video and then be able to be like Sean White on a snowboarder, you know? Right. It doesn't make any sense, but this is kind of the expectation that we put kids into. And what you said is absolutely right by encouraging them to make those mistakes and saying, these are opportunities for learning. That is changing people's expectations so that when they encounter those difficulties, they find the answer, they seek it out, right? Yeah. And one of the interesting things about grades, if you, I hope I'm not talking too no, much, I love but it. one of the things right. that you mentioned about grades really struck me too is that um, there's a trade off often between motivation to get something that's extrinsic versus internal motivation for curiosity. So often what happens is if you reward someone, you can even see this in animals, if they're rewarded for doing something, mm -hmm. 
they lose their intrinsic curiosity for that thing and it becomes about getting that external yes. validation, right? Yes. So we use tests as a yardstick and we say, hey, this is your one test and this shows, did you memorize it or not? And then we give people a good grade if they get it right. But if you're constantly testing people, then you can use it as a learning tool and say, hey, you didn't get it right, but here's an opportunity to learn from that. Yes. And that's a completely different mindset. And I think one that really benefits people in the long run, because in the real world, your tests are happening all the time. And you can see those as learning opportunities or you can see those as success or failure. Yeah. I mean, you, I feel like you see that in adults a lot where you can probably assume how they were tested mm -hmm. when they were in school. You know, people have, like you mentioned, math anxiety, for example. Yes. My husband has math anxiety and he's in finance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can see in him these moments where he's like double checking his number, this, that, the other. And it's like, he's the, the little boy again, yeah. just nervous that he's going to fail a test. Um, and I think, you know, it's really I find that my memory is better, that I have more energy when I am doing something that is just really fascinating to me, but mm -hmm. has no, um, has no like, not reward, that's the wrong word, but like, you will, you, you will get this amount of money if you do this thing, or you will get this validation from society if you do this thing, mm -hmm. where my curiosity is driving it mm -hmm. rather than the validation piece is driving it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm more apt to just become totally invested, interested, remember things that are meant to be remembered and also succeed in it because it's not driven by that validation. So I'm just, it's just fascinating to hear you speak about that because now it's making sense why I'm drawn to those things over, hey, this little like dangling golden carrot, hey, come over here and do this thing. Yeah. I'm not as driven by it. So it's just, yeah, really fascinating to reflect on. Yeah. I think that this trade-off is really important and also between internal motivation and trying to get, you know, validation from yeah. others or get an actual reward. Um, and then the, the other piece of it too is, is that one of the ideas that we've put out in our curiosity research is that part of what gives you curiosity is this gap that you have between what you know and what you want to know. And we think that's what can energize you to get more stuff mm -hmm. and get more information and resolve that itch to get the knowledge. But it can also, I mean, it's an uncomfortable feeling not knowing something. And if you look at the psychology of anxiety, it's all about not knowing something and not being able to predict what's going to happen. And so if you don't have the right attitude about learning in the first place, if you think it's supposed to be easy, not knowing is a threat and it's a reason to be anxious. And so you start to become math anxious as mm -hmm. opposed to if you have the expectation that, yeah, it's going to be hard and you'll get through it and you'll solve it or, you know, you'll get the answer and you'll eventually learn, then it becomes a game to try to find the answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It becomes fun. It becomes like more about the process rather than the reward at the end. Um, I want to talk about how, so we've talked about technology a little bit, how that affects memory. Um, we've talked about trauma. I want to talk about 
your like lifestyle habits. So nutrition, things like that. Mm-hmm. Is there any research around how that affects your memory, whether it's sugar or caffeine, things like that? Yeah, there's a lot of research on this topic. Now, sugar and caffeine, that's a really interesting That was one. just so, examples. but No, no, but this is, reminds me of a conversation I had. There's a researcher who I met who was actually studying the effects of nutrition on the brain. So um, just as a starting point, I always say the brain is a body part, right? Mm-hmm. And so anything that's good for your body on average is going to be good for your brain. So that's a good starting point because often we think, okay, well, crossword puzzles are what I should do. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of people neglect this link between health and the brain. And so yeah. uh, there's all sorts of things we're still learning. The amount we don't know is so much bigger than the amount we know. But this uh, colleague I was talking to was saying they did one experiment where they just gave the uh, gave a rat the equivalent of a can of soda a day, which I guess is a lot for a rat. Yeah. Know, but they were doing this, and what they found was its memory went down relative to rats that never got it. Wow. And what was interesting was some of it was if you actually had a rat that didn't get the soda but even was exposed to the gut microbiome, huh. the one that did, they also had memory problems. No way. So there's all these Disturbing. weird interactions between, <laughs> you know, and it's amazing because we know that inflammation affects the brain. And so things like long COVID, they're very real because yeah. you have this attack on the immune system and that leads, and even when we have colds, we often are cognitively impaired, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine something like long COVID or chronic fatigue syndrome. So- the more you can preserve your physical health and you can flip the script and be like getting good sleep, huge for memory, mm, right? Mm, mm. Uh, aerobic exercise really improves memory. It's one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself. Okay. Um, and why is that? Um, there's so many reasons. So one of the basic things that people will say is it promotes the uh, creation of new cells in parts of the hippocampus. But I think an even bigger part is it improves uh, blood flow to the brain. Yeah. And again, your brain's a body part and it needs energy. And so if you're improving blood flow to the brain, you're actually improving the efficiency of the brain to function quickly. And uh, so that's a big factor. It reduces inflammation, it reduces stress. So it also has effects on those everyday memory blockers yeah. that we have. Uh, so many lifestyle things, even things we're just discovering oral hygiene may be a part of it. The gum disease may be, really? you know, increase your risk for dementia as you get older. Wow. Um, things like sensory problems, like uh, research is showing that people with hearing aids actually improve their or maintain their cognition better as they get older. So we're still figuring out, you know, often the reasons behind these things are not so well known. But uh, there was a study... I might have this number wrong, but I think it was 30,000 people that was done by these Chinese researchers. And they had people implement like different lifestyle habits that involved, you know, some kind of uh, mental wellness kinds mm-hmm. of things, meditation or something. Some people were uh, having more of a healthy diet, like a Mediterranean style diet yep. and so forth. And the more of the aerobic exercise, another one, social engagement, and the more of these lifestyle changes people had, the better they were able to retain their memory over time. So before you go in and say, okay, I'm just going to load up on uh, whatever dietary supplements being sold to me, 
there's things we know right off the bat. Some of them are hard. You know, I'm, I'm still struggling to get it exercised <laughs> every day, but sure. some of them, and especially as a new parent, you know, it's yeah. really hard. You're not getting sleep. You're not yep. able to do everything, but do as much as you can. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even just a little bit a day, I'm like, okay, this makes such a difference and I'm feeling such a stark contrast. So I'm able to really know what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's fascinating. And it seems like, you know, I think people, if they really thought about it, know those things, right? Eating healthy, getting exercise, getting good sleep. Mm -hmm. um, but we become, I think, creatures of comfort. I think we become, um, I want to say like victims to our stress mm -hmm. where we're just kind of going to the, whether it's the junk food or the alcohol mm. or, you know, getting big cup of coffee, a few cups of coffee in the morning to get you going, mm -hmm. things like that, um, that I didn't realize could be really impairing the memory over time. Um, I want to talk about just to kind of round this conversation. I want to talk about collective memory. Oh yeah. So fascinating. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's get into it because I think I, the only time I've heard of like a collective memory is more from like a spiritual perspective. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear from yeah. a scientific perspective. Well, this is actually one of the great things about writing a book is you, I thought I knew everything about memory and then I started reading about collective memory and it was mind blowing. Wow. Um, and so there's many different levels of collective memory. You could think of history as collective memory. Okay. Uh, and you can also think of just what we're doing now as collective memory. And what I mean by that is even the, I mean, if you actually look at most spoken language, the amount of time we talk with people, yep. arguably the, I think one analysis suggests that the majority of that time is spent sharing memories, sharing, what did you do today? what did you eat? You know, um, what happened last week? So for all these things, especially if you're in a relationship, with someone yeah. close, you're sharing these memories. That act of sharing the memory actually can change the memory in interesting ways because when I share a memory with you, I tune up what I tell you, that narrative to some thing that I think we have in common, this common ground, right? And so just that act of sharing memories changes them mm. in interesting ways. So in the book I described, I had this near-death experience on a paddleboard, for instance, and it was a horrible experience and exposed a lot of my incompetence in certain ways. And I definitely made a lot of mistakes I wouldn't do again, mm -hmm. but it made for a hell of a story. <laughs> and so I love telling that story to people because it's, it's just kind of fun and you can actually get a lot of humor out of mistakes that you make, right? Sure. And so that's a great case where you have something that you remember it initially, it's just terrible, but it, through the act of sharing, mm. it becomes something that's much more positive. And, and one of the fascinating things as a parent, you can see this, is that research, especially a lot of it for whatever reason has been focused on mother-child relationships, but mothers who engage with their children about memory, mm. actually, that is a huge investment that appears to pay off even years down the road. What does so, that look like? So for instance, if you have a child, you take them to the beach, say, right? Later on, you come back home and you say, hey, do you remember that sandcastle that you built? And then they start to tell you all about right. it. And then you say, yeah, I remember then the water came and it washed it off. But then you started building over again. Wasn't that, mm. that was so great the way that you stuck with it? And that act of interacting with them, fleshing out the memory, all those things, uh, there's some researchers who say that that allows 
that teaches children about how to use memory mm. to build a kind of a narrative for their lives. And then that seems to be protective for things like depression when uh, during adolescence, yeah. it seems to predict grades. I mean, these things that you wouldn't think, but they have far reaching effects in the long run. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine it's like at the end of the day at the dinner table, it's a perfect time to talk about your day, but also ask questions mm -hmm. and really kind of dig into those memories. Um, yeah, it's yeah. really powerful. And, and you can see the reverse effect too, where if a parent is negating their child's yeah. memories, it can be Ooh, terrible, yeah. right? So kids say, oh, I had fun at the beach. And like, no, you didn't. You were complaining and crying nonstop on the way there in the traffic. Oh. And, you know, that kind of negating the child's perspective can actually have very detrimental effects development. In the sense that they wouldn't trust their memories or what? Yeah, exactly. They wouldn't trust their memories or they start to develop a life narrative that is mm -hmm. more based on the feedback that they're getting that they're not yeah. really, yeah. I mean, essentially that they start to lose that ability to, gain a sense of self through these positive interactions. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I am juggling quite a bit lately. <laughs> I have a new baby, um, six months in and, uh, we are finishing our book and running a business and a marriage and a house. And, um, it's just a lot, but everything is all good and just my dream, but it's a lot. But I have found that if my health routine is on point, then everything runs smoothly. And one huge piece of that routine is my supplementation. And Symbiotica has just always been a constant in my routine. Uh, if you haven't heard of Symbiotica, they're a health and wellness company that does everything with intention. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Like I know them. <laughs> Shervin has been on the podcast many times. I just have seen how passionate, how incredibly intelligent, how dedicated he is to creating products um, that are clean, plant-based, uh, without toxic or harmful chemicals, which we need more of that in the world. Um, so let me just run you through what I'm taking. Um, I take the vitamin D3 K2. It's the liposomal form. I just squirt 12 little pumps in my mouth every single morning. I also take their B12. Um, I'm also obsessed with the liposomal vitamin C. I have these little packets whether it's winter or whatever season, it's obviously great for immunity, but it also um, is amazing because it has biotin, one of nature's most beautifying ingredients. Uh, so I've seen an improvement in my skin, hair, and nail growth as well. I do have mom brain, um, but I'm doing my best to just support my brain health in any way. So for brain health, focus and memory, I really love taking their liposomal magnesium L-threonate. Um, it's an innovative form of magnesium that is able to cross the blood-brain barrier. It supports brain health, mood, immune system function, and overall well-being. It's incredible and tastes amazing. It's like this yummy vanilla cream flavor. That's the thing with uh, Symbiotica products. They taste unbelievable. So it really makes taking all of these supplements so easy, so yummy. And I actually look forward to it. So if you want to give Symbiotica a try, there is no better time. Right now is the time. Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A. Use our code almost 30, 20% off site-wide. So major. And then when you bundle and subscribe, which I highly recommend because you never want to run out of anything, uh, you're going to get an extra discount. So just do it up. Symbiotica.com and use the code almost 30 for 20% off site-wide.
Okay, this app has been with me through seasons of wanting to prevent pregnancy and also get pregnant. The app is Natural Cycles. It is a leading women's health company that they created the world's first FDA-cleared birth control app. So the app's algorithm uses hormone-driven changes in body temperature to let users know when they're fertile and not fertile. It is so easy, y'all. Every single morning I wake up, I have the uh, thermometer on my bedside table, and then I take my temperature, I input the temperature into the app, and boom, there you go. Um, It is 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use. It's pretty incredible. Um, I know a lot of people are just thinking about their birth control. Uh, A lot of people are going off hormonal birth control. This is an incredible incredible, incredible option for you. I've been using it for a couple years now. Um, and again, it is so easy. So the algorithm uses the body temperature to determine where a user is at in their cycle. The more they measure, the more data it will have. Um, and if you have an aura ring, by the way, it syncs with your aura ring and it'll take your temperature automatically. Pretty cool. You can trust Natural Cycles for the past 10 years. They have been setting the precedent for non-hormonal and non-invasive birth control without sacrificing effectiveness. They were the first to introduce a birth control app, the first to receive FDA clearance as a birth control app, and the first birth control app to integrate with that wearable device, the Aura Ring. They're the best. I'm excited for you all. Listen, as our listener, you are going to get a discount plus a free thermometer, baby. Use code almost30 at naturalcycles.com to get 15% off an annual subscription plus a free thermometer. That's naturalcycles.com. You're going to use the code almost30 to get 15% off an annual membership and a free thermometer. Last question is around AI and technology. Oh, yeah. And what's, yeah, I guess it's inevitable and mm-hmm. it's it's remarkably helpful in some aspects but i guess i want to understand how it could be detrimental to our memory or how we can just make sure that we are supporting our memory in this age of ai yeah and how to stay relevant yes. in the age of ai this is something that i think about a lot and yes. right now there's this big interaction between people in the ai space and neuroscientists actually because mm. they're trying to build ai that's more and more like humans um to yeah. me there's a really interesting dynamic that often happens where people adapt and learn to interact with the technology rather than the technology necessarily just doing everything for us. And so the promise of AI is it'll make life easier. But if you think about just typing, right? right. Like I, typing on a, on a keyboard is extraordinarily unnatural. And for those right. of us who came later in the game to texting, oh my God, it's so, so unnatural. But, you know, my daughter can do it in real time just phenomenally well. What happened to handwriting? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> like it, we learned it in school. I'm like, do kids learn that anymore? Yeah, I, I don't, don't even, know. Yeah. It, but, you know, you adapt to the technology. Yeah. And so what happens is, is then all of a sudden, like communication via texting is very Spartan and very yeah. focused because that's what the technology is optimized mm-hmm. for. So now you have AI. I found this actually with Gmail when they they shifted over to giving you AI-based completion is that about half the time it would suggest something. I'd say, no, go with what I had. Quarter of the time I would say, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Let me go with it. 
And then a quarter of the time, I would just end up going with what it suggested. Yeah, yeah, literally. Right? And You're like, so, thanks so much. Good to know. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And so what they could do is homogenize the, mm. you know, based on the common knowledge that's out there. But the problem is what's out there. I mean, you think about, again, from the uh, area of collective memory, what's out there on the internet that's training all these things. First of all, we don't even know what they're being trained with, but what's out there is not a representative sample of the world, right? Certain cultural mm -hmm. groups are more represented, certain gender inequalities, all those things. And so that's part of what's baked in because it's just a reflection of what's available. Yeah. Um, so that's very problematic. Um, but on the plus side, it gives us an edge over AI in certain ways because on you know, to train an AI model like ChatGPT or something, you feed it gobs and gobs of information that's curated by a human, right? Mm -hmm. But in our lives, we have lived experiences where we're interacting with the worlds and we're seeking our own training data, so to speak, right? Yes. And so, and we have these unique episodic memories that are just weird and idiosyncratic that are based on our interactions with other people, the things that we do on our own in the world. And that's missing from a lot of AI. Mm -hmm. And so... We know there's this connection between memory and imagination. And what's kind of cool is, is that episodic memory, this ability to remember unique events, really enriches people's imagination. Mm. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of an emphasis on human creativity that's idiosyncratic and weird and based on these lived experiences. Yes. And just as an added thing, I'll just say again, Basically, if you have a weird and eclectic set of training data, like, you know, uh, if you look at great artists, whether it's Picasso getting into Japanese masks and so forth, or if you look at like the Wu-Tang Clan getting yes. into science fiction and uh, getting into kung fu movies and using that, uh, all of these kinds of innovative art expressions come from these eclectic mm -hmm. influences that are just all over the place and seeing these connections. And so if you can connect yourself with a diverse social group, you get weird and diverse interests. That's, I think, a great insurance policy yes. in the age of AI. Yes. Yeah, I think people are, you know, it's depending on on what you do professionally, but I think it threatens a lot of people. I also think it helps a lot of people. So it's just a really interesting time, mm -hmm. you know, where um, I think so much of us want to optimize for productivity and ease and efficiency. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like we're going to hit a point where we just crave to your point that like, just that uniqueness and that like humanness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It'll be really interesting to see what happens, but I love that insurance insurance policy piece. I think that's really important. Um, I'm so glad you came. Why We Remember is the book. Um, and when this episode comes out, it is out. So please, please, please get it. Um, and I think this is really important. You know, people think about memory and they think, well, I'm young and I'm good, but I really... I'm thinking about it more than ever now, you know, and I consider myself still pretty young because I think what we are doing now could def definitely affect our memory in the long, long run. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your insight and your research um, and your experience. It was really, really fascinating. I had a blast. Thank you for having so me. So fun. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, we will see you on the next one.
<laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sharon, for coming on Almost 30 Podcast. Share this with a friend. Have a conversation about this. I think it's really important for us to be in conversation with people that we love. And I really love using podcasts as a point of connection. It's like an easy way to start a conversation with someone to get intimate about things. It gives you a place to go. Um, so highly recommend sending any Almost 30 episodes to all your friends, not only for us, but also for you. And make sure you're subscribed to the show um, on every platform. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to Morning Microdose, our clips podcast with the best of the best from Almost 30. Thanks for listening, y'all. We will see you next time. We'll see you soon. Love you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you.